She can't call me what she calls me at home, that's for sure. How you doing? It's good to see you in church. You doing okay? Man, I tell you, I was thinking during worship this morning, I could hear you guys all singing so well tonight. Not this morning, just, you know, before like five minutes ago. And uh, yeah, you guys were singing so good. I love it when I hear God's people singing praises to Him. I mean, we love it when we hear the creative team, don't we? But um, we also love it when we hear everybody. These guys are the worship leaders, not the worshippers. We're all the worshippers. Amen? And in your row, you're the worship leader. In your life, you're the worship leader. It is great to see Thomas Hampton back in uh, Alice in church with us, visiting from Mutajulu. Hey, Thomas, great to see you, mate. We're super wrapped to uh, not only see you back here, but so wrapped to see everything God's been doing in your life over the last little while. And it's awesome seeing you go from strength to strength. How many people love that? Awesome. Well, we are beginning a new series, Behold the Man. Now, it's interesting that uh, the longer you're a Christian person, the longer you're a believer, the longer you are, the more you're in danger of forgetting some of the most important things about Jesus. The longer you follow Jesus, the longer you come to church, the longer you hang around church, uh, you, you can learn, look, Christians have a danger. Here's the danger. They become slightly too sophisticated. They move on to deeper things, deeper things. Notice how people who talk about moving on to deeper things are always just a little bit weird. You ever notice that? Because actually in the Christian faith, the deepest and most profound things are actually quite simple. And what happens is we sometimes move on from some of the very simple and profound truths of the Christian faith, who Jesus is is, what he taught, why he came, why he died, the power of his life, the power of his death, the power of his resurrection, the reason for his ascension, sitting at the right hand of God, sending the Holy Spirit to us. There's all these amazing things. And in the lead up to Easter this year in our church, we are going to take a fresh and a new look at Jesus. And we're going to try to look at Jesus, not as people who know everything about Jesus. We're going to approach it with this thing that theologians call a second naivety, a second naivety. Second naivety means this, imagine if you got back to the place where you never knew anything about Jesus and you could just hear everything for the first time. Wouldn't that be cool? Some of us, we've been believers so long, we can't even imagine hearing something about Jesus for the first time before. And uh, sometimes what we have to do, it's actually a good spiritual discipline to come and say, if I never knew Jesus, if I'd never heard of this, if I'd never thought of this before, What would I respond to this message now? When I read a story, when I hear a parable, when I hear a teaching of Jesus. And tonight we are going to begin with an interesting story. On Sunday, in our Sunday morning services, we're going to open up um, John tonight, the Gospel of John. And uh, on Sunday morning, we're also going to open up the Gospel of John. And over the next few weeks, we're going to keep on opening the Gospel of John as we have a look at how John uniquely has a perspective on Jesus. Tonight, we're going to look at this story of how Jesus cleanses the temple and throws out the money changers and the animal wranglers. It's a very fascinating story. But on our Sunday morning service, we're going to have a look at the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Don't you think that's just the weirdest story in the whole world? I was uh, reading that text this week and I was doing the calculations of the amount of liquid that Jesus turned, according to John, from water into wine. And I did some calculations. And the first calculation is this. It equals between five and 700 litres of liquid. Ever thought about that? That's a pretty big wedding party, isn't it? 
So I tried to calculate it in Central Australian terms, and I found an article in the newspaper. I'm going to show the photo on Sunday morning. found an article in the newspaper where the police found 61 cartons of beer that were illegally being sold in a community, and 61 cartons of beer equals almost 500 litres. So when Jesus turns the water to wine, if it's only, the scholars tell us it's between five and 700 litres of liquid. If it's only 500 litres, that's 60 cartons of beer. Can you think, I know you're all so holy, you've never seen a carton of beer before, so you don't even know what I'm talking about, but that's a lot. If you took a bottle of wine, and you can see them all over the ground everywhere in Alice Springs or other places, go to a park or somewhere and you'll see these wine bottles, it is more than 660 of those bottles. Can you believe that? It's a significant very strange story. It was strange to the people who first saw Jesus do it. And 2016, 2020 years later, it's still a strange story. There's no domesticating Jesus. He does very interesting things. And some of us, it's been too long since we took a fresh look at Jesus and who he was, what he taught, what he did, and what he stood for. And so we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks looking In a few places, but we're going to spend a time in the next two weeks in the Gospel of John, seeing how John paints Jesus for us. So come on the journey. Let us pray before we open God's Word tonight. Father, we ask that you would come, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would do what you said is your favorite thing to do in your spirit, and that is to reveal the face of Jesus, to show us Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to lift Jesus up, because that's how people can be drawn into knowing you, Father. So we invite you here tonight. Shape our hearts and our minds and our lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen Amen and Amen. Well, listen to this. In John chapter 1, John starts his gospel, the gospel of John. Listen to this curious phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. Heard that phrase before? Well, if you're a Bible reader, you've heard it in Genesis chapter 1. And actually, it's interesting that John uses this phrase when he writes John chapter 1, because John thinks that when you open Genesis and you see God creating a whole brand new world, when John is telling you the story about Jesus coming, he's saying, now you're seeing Genesis 2.0. You're seeing God create a whole brand new world again, doing something amazing. And that's why there's all this speaking. God sends his word. This new light begins to shine. You remember that all from Genesis 1, right? And it's happening again, John says. But this time, it's not happening with a fireball in the sky. It's happening with a fire brand on the earth whose name is Jesus. Let's read. In the beginning was the... Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that had been made. Listen to this. In Him was life. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. It's just like Genesis 1. And the darkness has not overcome this light. Listen to John's phrase in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Come on, sometimes before we keep going right now, we should just take a moment and remind ourselves that it doesn't matter what things look like They're happening out there in the world. It doesn't matter what things look like. They're happening in the Middle East or in politics or in your school, in the workplace, in your body, in your health, in the situation. doesn't matter what's happening down the main street. doesn't matter what's happening in the Todd Mall. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the light. I think that's something for Christians to get excited about, don't you? Have you ever noticed this, that if you take a room that is filled with light 
and you turn on a torch, it makes exactly zero difference. But if you take a dark room and you turn on your torch, doesn't it make a difference? And that's why we don't mind when this world starts to feel like there's just darkness everywhere. Come on, we're real. We don't live in denial. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the victory of his resurrection. But we know there is dark patches of planet Earth, isn't there? Dark patches in our lives. There's dark patches in our hearts and our own minds, let alone the community that we live in. But we know that that darkness is not a problem because we have the light. Turn the person next to you and say, you've got the light, baby. And because you've got the light, it's good news. The light shines in the darkness. Darkness affects light, but you never find that darkness extinguishes light, do you? Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Listen to, how many people does God want to believe? He wants every person to come to the saving, trusting allegiance and faith and knowledge of Jesus all. John himself, he wasn't that light. He came only as a witness to the light. He's pointing to the light. We're going to go to the next slide, if we could. Verse, what's that? Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is the thing with Jesus, is that The universal human call is to just recognize Jesus for who he is. (laughs) Some people, they look at Jesus, they say, oh, he's just a great teacher. Other people think he's just an ancient world's version of Gandhi or something like that. And yet he has to be recognized for who he really is. Didn't recognize him. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's an adoption image, isn't it? He gave them the right. They officially were adopted into the family of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but supernaturally, miraculously born of God. Verse 14, listen to this, the word became flesh. The word became a human being. The word, Jesus wasn't just a spiritual apparition wasn't just an an imagination, wasn't just a ghost, he became a physical flesh and blood human being. He made his dwelling among us. Everybody say the word dwelling. 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 Let's just say it again, dwelling. Dwelling, Dwelling, you know why dwelling is such a fascinating word for John to use here? Because it was a reserved word, a special word, a holy word in the Bible. The word dwelling, here's what it was used for in the Bible, only ever one thing, and that is what God did in the tabernacle in the wilderness that Moses erected where his glory dwelt. God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. Then when they built a temple, Solomon and David joined forces and Solomon erected this great temple, God's glory appeared and it moved into the temple and forevermore it said, in that temple God dwells. Dwell It's not just like you living in your home. I dwell in my home. You live in a dwelling. It's not that type of word. It's a special word, this word. He made his dwelling amongst us. This is what John is saying at the outset. And then he's going to tell us some stories to help us understand what he's pointing toward. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, the word, became a human being and he made his dwelling Among us, God used to live in temples. It used to be in temples where God's glory dwelt. Now, when we see Jesus, that's God's glory. 
And his dwelling is not in a temple, his dwelling is among us. This is what no theologians except for me, because the word doesn't exist, call the de-religiousification of God. The word doesn't exist, but you can write it down and maybe make me famous. The de-religiousification of God. Because in every religious experience, in every faith group except for Christianity, there is the concept of special holy places. Every religious group has special holy places. It is only Christianity as a religious idea, as a, as a thought, as a revelation that comes down from heaven and says, when all of the humans are building and recognizing and worshiping in special holy places, God came down to tell you, hey guys, there are no special holy places anymore because Jesus in his glory came down as a human and now he doesn't dwell in a temple he dwells among us think about that for a second Jesus dwells he dwells among us now he dwells in your life if you're a yes to the gospel person you don't need to go to a holy place when we talk about the word church we don't mean this building we don't mean this organization like a company. We, we mean this congregation of people, the believers themselves, among whom God dwells. And we have seen his glory. Listen to John's testimony. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of two things, full of grace and full of truth. Listen, he... he he came and he dwelt amongst us. The word dwell makes you think of God in his glory dwelling in his temple. And John says, no, when you look at the life of Jesus, that's the glory of God. That's the glory of God dwelling among us now. When you think about God dwelling in the temple in the Old Testament, you think about smoke and fire and you think about fear. You think about when the Old Testament priest had to crawl into the temple to bring a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. They would tie a bell on him and a rope around his leg because it was so dangerous to go into the glory of God. Why? Because you as a sinful, normal, average, everyday, broken human being if you went into God's glorious presence that glory would consume you you wouldn't be able to survive the psalmist said who can stand in his presence and uh, they knew the priest could die when he went into the holy of holies one day a year he was allowed to do it to bring a sacrifice and because they knew he could die they listened for the tinkling of the bell like a cat every time he stepped tinkle tinkle jingle 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 and as soon as they heard a thud, dingle, and no more jingles, they knew he died. And they would just pull him out by the rope attached to his leg. God's glory, the smoke, the fire, the shining light, the fear, who can stand in his presence. And, and John has a, another idea for you. He says, actually, God doesn't want you to think about him that way. God doesn't want you to worship him with that in mind. God doesn't want you to pray for that to happen. God doesn't want you to stand in this church and pray that in smoke and fire and brimstone will appear here tonight. That, that, that's not how God shows himself anymore, John says. John says, I want you to look at the life of a man called Jesus, a life of a lover, a healer, an acceptor, a preacher, a, a, a demon caster outerer, a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, he'll be called. The one who laid down his life for you, the one who washed his disciples' feet, the one who reached out and touched those nobody would ever reach out and touch. And John says, when you look at this man, Jesus, doing that, 
You are face to face with the glory of God dwelling among us. You know, it's a shame because so many people, they want smoke and fire and they want gold dust and they want rubies to appear and all. There's DVDs about it. There's documentaries about it. It's all out there. And look, I'm kind of all good with it, but that is not what the Bible teaches you to look for when you want to see the glory of God. What the Bible teaches you to look for when you want to see the glory of God is take a look at walking, talking, living, breathing Jesus. That's the glory of God. And it's important because there's some surprises in us for how Jesus lives and what he teaches and what he does. And we see him full of two things, full of grace, full of grace, and full of truth. Grace and truth. When we celebrate birthdays in our family, normally the person celebrating the birthday gets to choose at least one meal over, we would normally consider the whole week to be a celebration. We like the idea of birthday week. It's pretty good, unless it's a very significant birthday, and then we may stretch it out even longer than that, just in sympathy for ourselves. If it's one of those ones with a zero on it or something like this. And uh, so what happens often is we will, somebody will say, I want to go to a breakfast buffet. Now, the idea of a breakfast buffet is why would you go to somewhere where you order a breakfast meal and they put it on a plate and they bring it out to you. And it's normally nice. It's okay. But the idea of a buffet is this other, other completely different idea that I think only men would have thought of called all you can eat. All you can eat. A breakfast buffet normally has 10 or 15 dishes, none of which a man will eat from except the pile of bacon right there for the most part. And he will have all he can eat. All he can eat. Now, you know when a man is making you... See, Danielle, my wife, she's, she's dainty. And she's ladylike. And she's polite. So she will go and she will take like one baked bean and one mushroom and one slice of broiled tomato and some vegan quinoa and some coconut you know, yogurt and, you know, something. And she will bring it back and she will have approximately two mouthfuls and then she will say, oh, well, I'm done. How about a coffee, love? And then she will just take her napkin and wipe her, be- wipe her face, wipe her face. Um, and uh, she will wipe her face and she will sit back and go, I'm done. But now she says, I'm done. That means I'm finished. There is another male in our family who shall remain nameless right now just for protection and confidentiality's sake. But there's another male in our family who's married to Danielle. And what he does is he goes to the buffet and he rolls out all the bacon you can eat. You know what I'm saying? There are no swine left in the southern hemisphere once this nameless moron has gone to the all-you-can-eat bacon breakfast buffet. And he has 17, 18 plates full of bacon and hash browns and tomato and baked beans and tomato juice and, you know, coffee and then, you know, a mushroom milkshake and all the really good stuff that we all love to eat. And he'll just eat that place until they've gone bankrupt, basically. Bankrupt. And then he will say, I am full, full. If you go out with Jenny McCallum for breakfast, she has a different phrase. You can talk to her about that afterwards. Uh, But I say, I am full, full. And often, I don't know, 
I might have to find a discreet corner to just pop my belt looser one little notch, you know what I'm saying? I, I, Daniel doesn't let me do this. My preference would be to wear tracksuit pants because they're stretchy, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but Daniel won't let be seen with me when I wear my tracksuit pants unless I'm doing track and field events pretty much, so uh, I can't wear them to the breakfast buffet. So I just pop my belt looser a notch because I'm full. Now what happens is eventually the waiters will say, hey, you've been here camped out for three days in a row, surely you've had all you can eat by now. And um, they'll ask this question, can I get you anything else please, sir? To which my answer is, man, I'm full. I couldn't fit another thing in. See, when you get to that point, that's what fullness is. Fullness is, I can't fit another thing in. If you can fit another thing in, you don't have to. Danielle, she could fit more things in. But she's crazy. (laughs) She just wants lettuce and alfalfa and a baked bean. And then she'll dab her lips and say, I'm done. This is all you can eat, baby. If it's all you can eat, I am going to test the very boundaries of the principle of all you can. Can being possible, able, allowed to legally, physically, in any other parallel universe. The maximum possibilities of what you can take in. I will say, I can't fit another thing in. Fullness means you can't feed anything else. Now think about this with Jesus, because John has used a profound word that we see Jesus, and when we see Jesus, we are confronted with the glory of God. It's a surprise to us, because we thought God's glory is a dangerous, big, smoky, fire-filled cloud in a temple, and John says, uh-uh, that's not what God's glory is. Take a look at walking, talking, moving, living Jesus That is God's glory and it's full. Can't fit another thing in, not of bacon this time, of two things that Jesus has consumed at the buffet of divinity, grace and truth. And he can't fit another thing in. He's full of grace and truth. Not passing token and acknowledgement to grace and truth. Full of it. Grace. God's unmerited favour. God's unmitigated, amazing kindness that comes to you as gift. So much so that in the Greek language, the word grace and the word gift are almost the same word. And there's often not much difference in the way they're spelt in the Greek language. Gift, grace, grifts. It's this one word put in an atom collider and smashed together. Charis, grace, gift. Jesus is full of the grace of God, the gifted nature of God who says, what do you do with a gift? You give it away. When does it become a gift? When you receive it. He's full of grace, unmerited favor, unmitigated kindness, giving you stuff without you earning it or paying for it or doing it. That's what Jesus is full of. Isn't that an amazing thing just to think of for a second? Because when you think of Jesus, I don't know, do you think of somebody full of grace. Maybe it's time for us just to stop and reflect in the lead up to Easter this year. Take a fresh look at who Jesus is. He's full of grace. Some of us think he's full of all sorts of stuff. He's full of truth. Truth, God's truth, the truth, the true ideas about God, the true way to live, the true sign point, the true reflection, the true expression, the word himself. He's so full of truth that he is the measure of truth. 
The word of God, a message, a communication, a memo, an email from God sent to earth called Jesus. Full of it, full of truth. Ever tried to wrap your head around the idea that Jesus at the same time could be full of grace and full of truth? Because I find most of the time people want to choose one between two of those options. They want to be full of grace and let the truth just slide a little bit because we don't want to hear it. Or they want to be full of truth. Had a cup of coffee with someone this week and they are suffering greatly in their life because they know all the rules every person should be following. And it's their job, it's their mission in life to make sure that if they spot you breaking a rule, they're going to tell you about it. They're going to they're gonna pull you over and write you a ticket. They're not a law enforcement officer. They're a spiritual law enforcement officer. Boo, woo, pull over. And they're going to pull out their notebook and tell you the rules that you broke and write you a spiritual infringement notice and make sure that you know what the rules are and what the rules say and what you've got to do. And they said to me, now, Pastor Ben, you know, it's just important because I represent you when I do this. No, you don't. And if you say that again, I'll take you out into the desert and bury you and you'll never be found again. Because I don't want that representing Desert Life Church and I don't want that representing me because what I want to do is represent Jesus. What we want to do in this church is represent Jesus and he's not just full of truth without grace. He is full of grace and he is full of truth and there's no division and there's no distinction in Jesus that his unconditional merit, unmerited kindness and favor can come upon you and when you accept his grace and his favor, you become infected with his truth and you don't need anyone to write your tickets because you catch a virus from Jesus the virus is called truthalitis truthalitis turn the person next to you and go <coughs> just cough some truthalitis on them now I got some bad news for you if you're a Christian if you're a Christian I got some bad news for you if you've received the grace of Jesus, you've caught truthalitis. And I'm sorry, there's no cure for it. I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do about it. You understand? You've caught something from God. And even if you try to uncatch it, it's truthalitis. There is no cure for truthalitis. If you're not a Christian, I've got some good news for you. You are safe from the grace of God and you probably haven't caught truth alitis just yet. So here's my advice. Run while you can. Run while you can. Because what I found is if you hang around with Jesus too much, his grace gets on you and you catch truth alitis and suddenly you find yourself doing things you would never do. I was on a plane. I was flying uh, to Brisbane from Adelaide a little while ago. Before I was a believer... I was a terrible alcoholic and a terrible addict, loved cocaine and drugs and smoking weed. And I found myself in conversation with a drug dealer next to me. I don't know why he was so stupid with his security, but he informed me that he was flying to Brisbane because he was picking up a big van full of weed and drugs. And he was driving it back to South Australia to sell. And that he did this three times a year. And all he did three times a year is took three trips. And the rest of the time, he just partied with all the money that he was making. 
Now, he thought I was such a good guy that he said, when I pick up my van full of drugs, what I normally do is I go and I spend the first night and I just party and I just smoke drugs and I just get all, you know, get it all into my system. And he said, Ben, you're such a good guy. I'd like to invite you to come along with me on my party drug van festival just until I leave town in 24 hours time. How about that? And I said, well, thank you so much for your kind offer. What a nice guy. Generous spirit. I said, but you know what? I I really appreciate you wanting to include me. Thank you. But there's no way I'm going back to that stuff. There's no way. Now, I didn't say, listen, man, don't you know I'm a Christian now? I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm full of the Holy Ghost. I'm full of power. I can even speak in tongues. I didn't say that. I said, you know what? I thought about it. See, at the same time, my three daughters and my wife were on a different plane going somewhere else. They were going to Melbourne for a holiday. I had a week at home on my own. I know, don't you feel sorry for me? These people partying without their husband and father. But anyway, that's what they had to do because I had to go back to work. I had a week at home on my own. Listen, if there was any temptation, that was the moment for it to come. If there was any pull, any drive, any old man wanting to rear up out of the grave and get back on the, or back on the gravy train, start smoking and snorting and partying just a little bit, that was my golden opportunity. When he's making me this offer, I sat back. I, I was in a, a Qantas jet. And I sat back and... Oh, a Qantas jet. So I, I, I sat back and I pressed the button and I reclined my chair a little bit and I scratched my belly like an old dog thinking. And I said, how do I feel about this? Is there anything in my life that wants to take him up on this offer? And I was stunned. You know why I was stunned? I had no desire to take him up on his offer. You know, 10 years before that, I was sitting in the backyard smoking the same type of drugs, talking to my sister who said, Ben, you've got to do something about your life. You are a real mess and something really bad is going to happen to you. And I said to her, Simone, if I could go one day without putting some type of drug in my system, that would be a miracle. And it would have been. And I sat on that plane and I thought, wow, miracles happen. You know what I'm saying? Miracles happen. See, what happened? Did I go through a life performance behavioral modification system? I know what I'll do. Drugs are bad. The truth's all over me. Someone's written me a ticket. Don't do drugs. They're bad. They give you a face like... They do give you a face like this. Don't do drugs. Okay? You could end up looking like an 85-year-old man in a 30-year-old's body. Terrible stuff for you, those drugs. I didn't do that. What happened is I encountered the grace that Jesus was full of and I got infected with the terrible case of truthalitis and that truthalitis and that grace began to act on me and deliver me and transform me and change me so that the things that used to be so tempting the things I was a slave to the things I couldn't say no to the things I thought man it would be a miracle if I could ever get away from that and suddenly here I am with a golden opportunity and that truthalitis wrecked that opportunity for me because I didn't want to do it. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Listen, I'm going to warn you. When you contract truthalitis, really strange stuff starts happening in your life. You you will find things begin to change. Full of grace, full of truth, the glory of God, John says to us, 
amazing. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 carries on this theme of Jesus. John calls him the word. We use words to send messages, memos, communication. Jesus is God's communication to us. Jesus is a message from God that God had been trying to send to the world for a very long time and the world wouldn't get with the program and in the infinite wisdom of the Godhead, the Godhead said, how about Jesus goes and then all you have to do is look at him and you don't even have to be able to read You just have to look at him and you get a message from God. You have to look at what he does, what he says, you get a message from God. Well, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 to 4 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God spoke in all kinds of ways. But listen to this verse 2, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Listen to this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the thing the universe had never seen before and a representation of God. In fact, it's so impossible to make a representation of God that in the Torah, in the Levitical laws of the Old Testament, you were banned from doing it. You were not allowed to make a carving or a statue of God because it was not possible to capture a representation of his being. And then you would get it wrong, and then that wrong thing that you made, you would begin to worship and therefore be worshipping the wrong thing. Hebrew says the only way that it was possible for God's representation, for an understanding of who he is, for a reflection of his glory to be apprehended by the human race was for God to send Jesus so that we could look at Jesus and go, aha, now I see the glory of God. Have you ever thought about that? There's this song that goes like this. Show me your glory, let you... You know the the one, like it's kind of folky and one of those painful Christian songs that's like, okay, just give me Gatorade and stop singing now. You know one of those songs? Show me your glory, let you... It's a painful, painful song. Sorry if it's your favourite. But it's a silly song. And it's a silly song because the claim of Scripture is that you really want to see God's glory. I know, we, we like this. We want something with a bit of zap. We want something with a bit of pizzazz. We, we want some, some smoke and some fire. And we want some glitter and we want some gold dust. And we want some jewels to appear. and We want all this cool stuff. And we want, show me your glory, Lord. And the writers from the New Testament consistently reform our brain and tell us, listen, God has already showed us his glory. We see it when we're confronted with the person of Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The great poet said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel me to the garden. Remember the poem? If you want to see God's glory, you open up the Gospels and you see walking, talking, living, breathing Jesus. And God says, I don't want you to associate me with the smoke and the fire and the other crazy stuff. I want you to associate me with the one who shows you the holes in his hands. The one who said, I'm the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I'm the great healer. This is the magnificent thesis of the New Testament. That when everybody thought God was like this, Jesus comes and goes, ta-da, God's like this. And they didn't like the expression of God that they saw in Jesus. Do you know what I found? Christians can often be very much this way. 
Modern people can be very much this way, that we're sick of just plain old normal Jesus. We really do want some smoke and some fire and maybe some extra bells and whistles and some, I don't know, some kind of spooky weird stuff to happen. I make my eyes twitch when I say it, some kind of spooky weird stuff. We have the same danger that they were faced with in the first century world. See, the people Jesus walked and talked and lived amongst, the religious experts rejected him because they didn't like the God that they saw expressed in Jesus. They wanted a different God, a God who was angry, a God who was racist, a God who was all about law, a God who was all about the rules, a God who would smite you if you didn't follow the rules. Come on, how many Christians do we know that are like this? Hey, listen, if that's your God, you're not a Christian. Did you know that? Because if you're a Christian, your God looks exactly the shape that Jesus looks. It is Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God who you cannot see, Jesus that you can see. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Listen, stop wishing for a different, weird, spooky God. Start enjoying the loving, gracious, full of grace and truth God who has come in human form so we could understand everything God has for us. So John tells us a bunch of stories, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2, we're going to pick up, let's see, in John chapter 2 from verse 13. We can skip that slide. John chapter 2 verse 13. It's a story about Jesus going to the temple and turning over the tables and casting out the money changes and driving out the animals. Let's go back to that previous slide, if we could. It's got, I've got a question for you. Just the slide before. Here's my questions. What table would Jesus overthrow in your life? Right now, if Jesus, if, if Jesus walked into your life right now, let's say you're at home by yourself and Jesus walks into your life, what, what tables would he overturn? What would he round up? The Bible says he rounds up all his animals and he drives them out of the temple. What would Jesus round up and drive out in your life? What would he kick out? What would he drive? The Bible says Jesus, I was reading one theologian this week and he called it Jesus' temple tantrum. Jesus lost his cool. The one who was full of grace and truth picked up some ropes and some cords and made a whip and drove animals and people and stuff out of the temple, he ejected them from the temple, he kicked them out from the temple. And by the way, most Bible scholars say it was in that very act that we read about in John, the very first public thing. Jesus did another private thing, turning water to wine. We'll talk about it on Sunday morning. But this is his first public action, walking into the temple in Jerusalem and walking and seeing the market in the temple, the animals and the donkeys and the lions and tigers and bears. I don't think there was any lions and tigers and bears. And the doves... And the sparrows and the special money changes. And Jesus sees this whole market set up and he gets angry. He gets so angry that John says, the disciples saw what he did and they said, we could only think of the scripture that said, zeal for your house has consumed me, has eaten me up. And he gets steamed about it and he kicks everybody out. I mean, that would have been a scary thing, right? When was the last time somebody grabbed a whip and tried to get you out of a building? You know what I'm saying? It's not an everyday occurrence, is it? If Jesus walked into your life, what would he do that to? Think about it. Here's what I've found as both a pastor and as a Bible teacher. Most people answer this question wrongly. 
Most of the time when you imagine, hang on, what would Jesus kick out of my life? What would Jesus drive out of my life? Most people don't answer that question the way John is teaching us when he tells us the story. We kind of forget to learn from the story John's telling us, and in our minds we jump ahead. And some of us, some of us we imagine, well, if I was in the temple, Jesus would probably kick me out. Some of us imagine, well, they've got, got this problem in my life and this problem in my life and this problem in my life and that, that's the stuff Jesus would get and he would drive it out of my life. Most of us answer the question the wrong way. We're going to read the story and then we're going to come back to this, what would Jesus drive out of our lives? We're going to go to John chapter 2 from verse 13. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle he scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables to those who sold doves he said get these out of here stop turning my father's house into a market everybody say market Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered it's written, zeal for his house will consume me. The Jews then responded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Remember, Jesus wasn't a priest or a temple official. He's creating a coup. He's creating a little revolution here. He's doing something no one else had the gumption to do, come in and kick out all the officials out of their own temple. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people and he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. Interesting. John wants you to think about this story, but before you think about the story, John wants you to think about these words, he knew what was in each person. We're reflecting on a Jesus who drives things out, casts things out, kicks things out, rounds them up and whips them out. And then John says, before you think too much about that, remember this, Jesus knows what's in each person. He knows you, knows your life, knows what's in your heart and mind, knows what you're thinking now, knows what you were doing at 2.30 this afternoon or 6 p.m. yesterday. He knows what's in you. Imagine being there, walking with Jesus into the temple. Here, here, Here we are. We're in the place where As you go into the temple entry area, the the, the festival of the Passover was going on. Now listen, if there was a massive festival in Israel, it was the Passover. The Passover is like the very first Jewish festival officially ever celebrated while they were still in Egypt coming out where they had to slay a lamb and paint the blood of that lamb on the doors and windowsills of their houses so that God's judgment would pass over them and they would be saved and they would then be led out of Egypt into the promised land. This is the time where the lamb was killed, the blood was shed and anybody who 
who had that blood painted over the doorpost of their life, God says, you can be saved and you can be led into the promised land out of the Egypt of the life that you're living. And the Jews celebrated that story for centuries ever after. Christians also have celebrated the story because guess what? We too have had a lamb slain on our behalf. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he doesn't see a man. He looks and he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees a sacrificial lamb, knowing that a person can, over the doorposts of their life, have that blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross of Calvary applied to their life, and they too can experience the Egypt-defeating promised land bringing into life of Jesus. But now you don't have to go and kill a lamb. A lamb's already been killed. That's what we celebrate at Easter is the resurrection of that lamb. It's an amazing time. Passover. They, they would flock from all over the known world to Jerusalem to see the spectacle of the Passover. People, good Jews from everywhere, not just everywhere in, 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 in Israel, everywhere from Egypt and from Babylon and from Italy, from Rome itself, from, from Asia Minor, Jews from everywhere. They would make the long trek to Jerusalem to be in the temple for the feast of the Passover, one of the great feasts. The place was jam-packed. And everybody wanted to live in this memory. Everybody wanted to celebrate this story. Everybody wanted to get in on the festival. They wanted to get their, their goat or their lamb. They, they wanted to get their heifer or their bull. They, they, if they didn't have much money, they could buy a dove or a sparrow. It was scaled. So there was a sacrifice that everybody could get to bring and, and have it sacrificed and poured out on the altar as their way of getting in on the worship that God had for them. Can you imagine... They say, historians, that the road up the mountains of Jerusalem, up to the Temple Mount, was just jam-packed with people that it could take you days and days to make the journey because you were stuck in a traffic jam. Horses and donkeys and people and sheep and goats. Now, when you brought your sacrifice to the Temple, it had to be perfect. Perfect. Everybody say perfect. No scars. Oh, no. A little lamby rubbed up against the barbed wire fence. Well, then don't bring that to the temple because if it's got a scratch, if it's got a scar, it can't come. Oh, no. Little snowflakes got a birthmark. Well, don't bring it to the temple because it's not allowed there. It has got to be perfect. Here's the phrase. A lamb, a bull, a bird, a dove, without spot and without blemish. It can't even have like a little acne outbreak. You know what I'm saying? How many people had a terrible teenage time with that? Yeah, you wouldn't be allowed in the temple. Without, it had to be perfect. So here's the thing. You and hundreds of thousands of people are all heading up to Jerusalem and there's people everywhere. People walking with their walking sticks, people in their carriages, people on their horses. There's Roman soldiers, there's Jewish soldiers, there's temple soldiers, there's King Herod with his personal bodyguard. There are thieves and bandits and pickpockets and all this stuff going on and you are going up to Jerusalem with all these other people and you want to bring a perfect sacrifice to God when you get to Jerusalem. So you do something smart. You decide you're not going to bring little Snowflake with you and risk that Snowflake is going to get damaged on the way. And then this stupid lamb that you brought all the way from Galilee or Egypt or Babylon and you walk there that you've had to feed and water every day and clean up its 
carbon emissions. You, you, don't want it, you don't want it to get damaged and then be told, sorry, that can't come into the temple. So you don't bring one. Instead, what you do is you fill your pockets with some cash. Get some gold coins, get some silver coins, whatever you can scrounge. And you know, I'm going to get to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to the market that is just outside the temple. And this market is one run by wonderful people. Because they want to help me and they want to sell me a sacrificial lamb or a dove at a very reasonable price, my friend. Very reasonable price. Special deal just for you. And they want to do that. They want to help me. They're outside the temple because they wouldn't do it inside the temple. And here they are outside the temple with their reasonable prices. And then one day, along comes a high priest, and his name is Caiaphas. And you read about him often in the story of Jesus. And Caiaphas gets married to a woman who is the sister of King Herod. And King Herod is a gang-type thug, like a Viking-type character, who has no actual official claim to be a king at all, He jumps on a boat one day and he goes off to Rome and he cons the Romans, listen, if you want to manage in Israel and if you want Israel to, you know, um, be Romanized and loyal and you don't want these Jewish people trying to reject the Roman Empire all the time, make me the king and I will sort them out. And Herod was violent and he was a bully. He had a bunch of wives that he killed. One of the Roman emperors said, if I was related to King Herod, I would rather be his pig than his son because the pig gets better treatment. It was written in the official, how about that, as a parenting style. Going down in history that Nero said, your pig gets treated better than your son does. He needed to do some triple P parenting courses, that guy. Uh, He was a violent, evil man, King Herod. And he has a sister and he marries her to the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And then Herod and his brother-in-law Caiaphas, they get together one night, probably over a cognac or an espresso or something like this, and they come up with a plan. What if we could make more money? And they decided, when they were walking through the market outside the temple walls, you know, we kind of have control over all of the inside of the temple. And we've got this space. Well, we could probably set up a market. And if we set up the market, the market is in the temple. And in the temple, we could sell goats and sheep and bulls and heifers and doves and sparrows and anything else a person has to sacrifice. Imagine if they could come to the temple and they could buy it from us at the temple. Well, they looked over that table and they high-fived each other. Great thinking, brother, yes. They came up with another plan. Well, King Herod, since you're the king, maybe you could get some of your soldiers and go beat up the people in that market outside and we'll shut down their market. And day after day, they would bully and they would beat and they would intimidate and they shut that market down. And then there was only one market in Jerusalem where you could go to buy your sacrifice in the temple. And because there was only one market and the market was in the temple, they had another idea. Let's triple the prices. Because these people, they used to call the people outside the temple area 
especially the ones who didn't live in Jerusalem. They used to call him the Am Haaretz, the people of the dirt. That's what they were known as, the average everyday Joe. Let's get these Am Haaretz, these people of the dirt, the dirt people. When they come in to worship God, let's charge them good and proper for the sacrifice. Let's make sure, listen to it, let's make sure they pay. Let's make sure when they bring that lamb to sacrifice that they've paid through the nose, that they've had to pay top dollar for it. Let's make sure that we screw that price up really, really high because we don't want them coming into the temple bringing a sacrifice that didn't cost them much. We want them spending everything. We want them taking their their blood and their sweat and their tears and scrimping and saving and getting every bit of money that represents everything they have and we want them to bring it to our market and we want to charge them a fortune for their sacrifice so they can go and sacrifice to God and then God will love them because we made them pay. Good plan, right? Prices through the roof. Well, some people didn't have a problem with it. They did it. And then a little while later, Herod and Caiaphas, brother-in-laws, king and high priest, came up with another idea. Listen, we could still make more money here. Everybody brings all of their coins and currency from wherever they come from and they give it to us. Because now they have to pay a tax to get into the temple as well. So before you go to buy your sacrifice that you pay through the nose for, before you're even allowed into the temple, you've got to pay tax to get into the temple now, a temple tax. And Herod and Caiaphas had this great idea. What about instead of letting them pay us in the coin of any money they happen to have on hand, let's invent our own money, our own currency, temple coins, And those temple coins have no value anywhere else except inside the temple. And we'll set up in the temple a money changes area where if you want to pay the temple tax that gets you into the temple, you have to come and buy temple coins from us with your hard-earned gold and your hard-earned silver. And if you don't pay us your hard-earned money, we won't let you into God's temple and then we'll charge you a fortune for the sacrifice. Your blood and sweat and tears will be thrown into paying everything you've got for this sacrifice and then you can go in and worship God and then maybe God will be pleased with you and love you. And Jesus comes in And he doesn't see God's design of a temple that was supposed to be thrown open. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them had visions of not just God's people coming in and worshipping him, but people from the north and the south and the east and the west and Egyptians and Babylonians and Canaanites and eunuchs and old men and young women that they would all come and in the temple they would dream dreams and have vision and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would worship God and the prophets celebrated and Jesus goes for his very first visit since he was a young man up to the temple to the Passover feast of the Jews. And I wonder what Jesus is thinking as he goes up there. Man, I'm coming home. Here I am, the Messiah. They don't even know I'm the Messiah yet. And I'm coming back to my house. Here I am, God's king, God's man, God's one. I'm coming back to God's house. I'm coming home and I'm coming home with all these other people. Imagine Jesus walking up the streets in Jerusalem, the traffic jam, the clog, the excitement, people singing songs, people saying, what do you think it's going to be like this year? And the excitement and Jesus there thinking, they don't even know that as they go back to God's house, the son of God's house is coming back to God's house and I will lead them and heal them and redeem them. And Jesus must just be excited at this point and he walks in the door at the temple and someone says, no one is coming in here unless they pay. 
Now, Jesus put up with a lot of stuff in his ministry, and you don't see him lose his cool much, especially where he whipped people. And the king of the kingdom came home to his father's house, and the first thing he's confronted with is nobody comes in unless they pay, and Jesus loses it. He drives out, he overturns, he throws out, he, he, he takes the money, changes money, and then the Greek says he literally tips it out. There's a big pot of money, and he goes to the temple door, and he throws the money out the door. Get out of here. Get these animals out of here. You sellers, get out. Jesus ejects them all. If there's something Jesus would eject from the life of a person, he would like to see worshipping him. Listen to what it is. The attitude that says, if you want something from God, you must pay. Of all of the things and all the conversations and all of the situations Jesus was faced with in the ancient world, the only one that made him rise in such a rage that he became furious was this attitude, you can't come in unless you pay. How many of us think that we're earning it from God? How many of us are trying to perform and jump through hoops? How many of us are trying to earn our salvation? How many of us every day are just trying to do something so that maybe God will be pleased with us? And we're we're using our blood and our sweat and our tears, man. And John tells us the very first public action of Jesus is he violently attacks the system that says, if you want something from God, you must pay, because here he is, the Lamb of God, who says, you need something from God, so I will pay. That's what Jesus says. Sacrifice on your behalf. Redemption that comes because he's full of grace, so it comes as something, a free gift that you get by receiving, not by buying or paying. What would Jesus What tables would Jesus turn over in our lives? The one that says, you've got to pay for it. That's the first one. Here's the second one. This market was located in this unique place in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, when the temple was rebuilt, this is not the temple that Solomon built at the time. It was rebuilt by King Herod the Great. And when they rebuilt it, they decided to add something on, a court. And the court was this, in fulfillment of the prophecies that Isaiah would see, that one day Gentiles would come and worship God, the Jewish people said, Gentiles, yuck, we don't want them in here with us worshipping God. So they built a separate area, a separate veranda on the temple called the court of the Gentiles. And they said, well, if Isaiah's stupid prophecy that the Gentiles will come and worship God comes true, we don't want them in the temple with us so they can stay on this veranda and worship Jesus. And so they had this court, the court of the Gentiles, and they put up a sign at the entryway to the main temple, at the entryway, and it said this, no foreigner is to go beyond this area. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will surely follow. (laughs) They had a sign on the wall saying, if you're a Gentile, stay out here in the court of the Gentiles, don't come into the temple, otherwise will kill you. You're an outsider. You're no good. You're evil. You're the wrong race. You're the wrong type of person, the wrong skin color, the wrong... You don't follow the rules. You're not welcome here. That's what that was saying. Now, Caiaphas and King Herod, they get on board this idea. Good idea, guys, building a veranda for the Gentiles. But listen, 
Why do we want Gentiles in the temple anyway? What a waste of space. Let's bring in some animals. Let's start our market right here. And the place where this story takes place is where the market was, which is the court of the Gentiles. First of all, they've said, we don't want the Gentiles in the temple, keep them out here. And then they've said, no, you can't come in unless you pay. And then if you come in, the Gentiles can't come in because we're using their space to charge everybody else. And Jesus walks up to Jerusalem as the king of God's kingdom, the son of the house, coming home thinking the prophecies I'm going to teach, I'm going to lead, I'm the good shepherd of Israel, they'll sit at my feet.